necessary to justify them before himself. We've learned that the picture of Genesis in the creation and the fall is an established outline for the totality of the Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament specifically. And then as we see the apostles teach in the New Testament, we see that they point to this reality. So it's not something that scholars have discovered in their genius, or, nor is it something that I, in any, in any sense, have come to understand because I'm smart. But that it, in and of itself, is just the revelation of God. That God reveals Himself through His Word, and His Word reveals His Son, and the Son is revealed in all the types and shadows of the history of God's people. And that out of it, that God is not showing us the mythological tales of old so that we may learn life's lessons, but God is revealing Himself in a sovereign way to show that what He is doing, He is producing, what He desires, He is fulfilling, what He has decreed has come to pass, and no one shall thwart His plans. For the world at large, they look and they seek and they grow in understanding and knowledge and power. But for the believer, we rest in a childlike faith of of simply knowing who He is because of what He has revealed concerning Himself. And we grow to understand Him more and more as we grow in grace. We realize what grace is all about. And beloved, there are many ways in which I could take this text, but I'll tell you this morning... I want you to understand that God, as He has created a place called the cosmos, as He's created time, as He has created everything, and then even in the world, created a location for life, we know that He has also created a place for His people. A place for His people. I'll come back to this at the end of of my message this morning, but Jesus says to the disciples in John's Gospel, when they're worried about his talk about going. And they say, well, where are you going? And of course, he talks about going to the Father. And some of them say, well, we want to go too. And Jesus says, well, you can't. You can't go where I'm going. But be of good courage. Have the joy. Not that the world has. The joy that I give you. The peace and understanding that I give you. He says, behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you also will be. Beloved, that is nothing except what the Genesis account is showing us. That God is in the business of preparing a place for His people that where He is, they shall also be with Him. But unfortunately, in our academic endeavors, we have come to the place where we think that Genesis is to teach us something of a theonomy. Teach us something that we ought to be doing as human beings or as, quote, God's people. That we should be creating a world in which God rules. Beloved, God rules the world already. God rules the devils of this world, the winds of this world. God rules the governments of this world. Our sovereign God, Jesus the Christ, rules all things in this world. And there is nothing outside the power of His hand. There is nothing outside the scope of His sight. Nothing. He causes all things to happen according to His purpose. And if we are in Him, if we are found in Him before the foundations of the world, then all these things that may seem so terrible are nothing but good gifts for us. And what the world may see as a good gift is just a reprieve of justice. It is a difficult conversation to have. And it's so interesting to know that, you know, here we are in the eight-month 
about to be in the ninth month of this calendar year, and it's just like blown by. And I have friends who've been, you know, they read the Bible every year in a certain way, and, you know, they usually quit in Kings. Some people quit Deuteronomy. Some people quit Leviticus. Some people quit Genesis 5. So, I mean, I was like, whatever. But for some, they just go through it, and it's really interesting to see that people read through the Bible year after year. They read through all of these books and letters, all, all 66 of them, and, and they come to the conclusion that, wow, that's cool, I finished the Bible again. But yet, we're not looking at the picture of Christ. We're not looking with the right glasses on. I'm just now used to these glasses. I've nearly broken my foot and bumped my head and torn everything in my life apart, uh, run off the road, but now I'm getting used to this thing called progressive lenses. I get used to it. I never thought I did. You know, and I still find myself looking pretty buggy every now and then. But everybody said, just give us some time, give us some time, give us some time, you'll get used to it. Well, beloved, now without these on, I can't read anything. I can't see anything. Now I've conditioned my eyes to need these. Well, beloved, and the same thing is true in the spiritual sense. We must condition our spiritual eyes to need the lens of the gospel of free and sovereign grace that when we look at the narratives of the Old Testament, when we look at the letters of the apostles, when we look at the, the genealogies of the text, we are not looking to discover something that is not there. We are looking through the lens of Christ and Christ alone so that we may see His glory and understand redemption is found alone in him for his people this is how we read the Bible it's simple and to think that I've got almost 86 hours of hermeneutics under my belt academically if somebody just told me that in the beginning I could have saved a whole lot of time and money not necessary beloved it's not necessary Interestingly enough, there are not addendums. Yes, I love the patristics. For those of you who know church history and the academics of church history, I love to read people. I love to watch people. If I find a letter on the ground, I'm going to read it. <laughs> if somebody says, I've got something to tell you, I'm going to listen. I love to learn what people think and what people are saying. Superpower, there's a lot of them out there that, are, that I could choose from. Invisibility would be the best one because you could be the creep that snoops and listens in and watches people without getting into fights. What you looking at, your mama? I mean, you know how that works. That's what it was when I was a kid anyway. And so I love to read, but you know what? Only the Bible makes the impact that's necessary for my salvation. Only the Bible teaches me to worship. Only the Bible fills my soul. Only the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, gives me hope in the midst of hopelessness. Light in the midst of great darkness. Power in the midst of weakness. Our testimonies and the testimony of man and the theologians of history are not necessary for salvation, nor are they necessary in any sense whatsoever for any joy that the Christian is seeking. But when we come to these things, what we do when we come to the joy of other people, when we come to the theology of other people, we are living vicariously through their relationship with the Word of God rather than living with Christ in the Word of God who is the Word of God today. And so, beloved, I pray that as we continue to walk through this text, and in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll start Timothy as well, and we'll just be going back in two between Genesis and 1 Timothy as Paul would teach young Timothy that the Word of God is breathed out by God. 
and is only and only profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be successful, prosperous, and true in all of his work. It is a fool's errand. It is a fleshly imposition against the authority of Christ when we argue and debate doctrinal things that are not contextually driven in the journey in which we have been given. Now let me break that down into simple terms. If you haven't thought of it and learned it from the Bible, shut your mouth about it. If you Googled it, you didn't learn it. If you read it from a James Tippins archive, it's not yours. Soak it up. Sit in it. And be a Berean and test it. Be a Berean and test it. I've got about a half a dozen YouTube channels that I watch every day. They're not theologians. They are not Christians. It has nothing to do with ministry whatsoever. It's a specific thing that I'm into right now that I'm watching and researching and looking. And you know what? In four months it'll be something else. But I found that there are other experts in the field. And someone sent me a video yesterday. I said, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. And I'm listening to this guy. He's talking about some economic things. And I'm going, hmm. Hmm. Let me listen to my guy. And when my guy came on, his voice was so familiar, I just felt at home. Like he was just sitting there with me. That's what we do, isn't it? Well, people that's listened to Tippins for so long, when Tippins' voice is heard, they feel comfortable with what's being taught. Oh, we've listened to this guy, or we've read this person, and we hear that tone and that timbre. Beloved, listen to the voice of Christ. My voice will cease one day. I am not Christ. Matter of fact, I am so far from inerrant, it's laughable. Do not come to hear what I have to say. Come to see what God's Word has to say. Let me be a slave for you through it. And then when my time is done, let another person take this role. Beloved, read the Word of God through the lens of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Because only then will you understand that which is incomprehensible. As I read this morning in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to go back there is that the, 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 the drive of every believer ought to be to that end, that we are sitting in such a place of rest that we have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Now let me tell you something, beloved. There is no such peace in this world. None. No such peace in this world. There is nowhere for it to be found. There are, there are tiny little minuscule Breaks. There are small little pockets that seem peaceful. There are opportunities and things. There are chemicals that we can use in this world that can simulate peace. But beloved, it is not peace. Peace is only found not in the experience, and not in the environment of life, but in the giver of life, in the person of Christ. And I'll tell you right now, of all the people in our world who profess to be in Christ, we all know that a majority of their so-called Christ are not the true Christ of Scripture because they're just going on what they've been taught. 
not what God has shown them. Therefore, we are to say to them, these people have never been shown the truth. They don't know peace. They don't know life. They just know a version of some alternate gospel that's not a gospel. And so they, therefore, have no peace. But beloved, God's true children, those who are truly born of Him, are also in that same place. Because the world that we live in is not peaceful. Now, if we didn't have news and publications and, and, and things of that nature, I was going through some old journals from the 80s this morning, uh, yesterday morning, cleaning out some stuff. Going through some old stuff. And I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of newspaper clippings I have saved. I thought, what am I, a pack rat? I have an Evernote software that I pay for premium every year, and I've had it for 12 years. I got more clippings in that thing than could ever be held in a house. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a collector of information. I'm a collector. But back in the day, you had to look, you had to go, you had to buy something tangible, you had to talk to someone on the phone. The, the, the communication, the information flow was just... And so to learn meant to look for and seek out something and really pay attention because you didn't have time to just stuff a whole bunch of junk in your mind and in your ears. You had to be very selective and very picky. Today, you can just take your phone out if you carry one with you. And you could say, hey Google or hey Siri. It would be funny if everybody's phone went... Bloop, bloop, bloop. <laughs> You can search anything you want. The problem is you're not finding what you're looking for. You're just finding what's available and most, what? Popular. Beloved, that's not what the Christian life is all about. Christian life is not about riding the waves of pop culture, riding the waves of, of politics, riding the waves of things, and inserting Christian values and worldviews into these things. The Christian life is to be out of the world because we're not of the world, to be separate from the world, and to live in a manner with such a joy and with such a peace in the midst of great turmoil that the world looks at us like we're fools. I find it very interesting. I, I mean, I... Uh, friends that, that I don't know if I'll ever hear from them again because they live in, in, in Kabul. Can't get in touch with them. It doesn't matter. I'm, not, I'm, I'm burdened and I'm grieved for what's happening there and I'm very sad and I wish it would change and I pray against that circumstance like I do with the pandemic and like I do with our politics and do with our economy and do with my neighbors and do with you and our health and everything else. But ultimately the end of it all comes to God's sovereign purposes. And so I can rest knowing that no matter what the outcome is, it is for my joy and for my good as well it is, is for you. For God causes all things to work together for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. James says that all good gifts come from above. The psalmist and some of the prophets would write about all things that take place come from the hand of God, as I've already expanded upon this morning. Beloved, we can find the joy of Christ. We don't need to look up Scripture that talks about joy. It's sort of like, it's platitudes. Just be thankful. For what? You see, thankfulness by definition has a double object. There's a reason to be thankful that sits with you, in you, or around you. There's something tangible 
or intangible, but it's tangible in the context that it can be measured and, and, and shown and talked about. And then there is always a, recip- a recipient of things, and then there is always someone who gave it. Thankfulness always has a dual object. The thing we're thankful for and the one who gave it to us. I remember as a kid, I wanted a computer so bad, you know, 1984, 85. I want a computer. When you bought a computer back in those days, especially the Tandys or the Commodores, it was just a, it was just a, a keyboard, and you plugged it into a TV, and you had a little slider thing on it. It's just a keyboard, and it was basic. And all you got when you turned it on was a cursor. That was it. And you got a cassette player, and the cassette player, you got the tapes, and you put them in, and you could write code, but you had to record what you write, wrote, the code. And then they graduated from that to the big well, floppy disks, about like this. Hard drive, you know, the biggest hard drive you can get, like 100 kilobytes. Good golly, that's, we'll never fill that up. I remember saying that. And I remember in the 90s, late 90s, after Katie was born, throwing away boxes of media, tapes and floppy disks. And then they went to the little small ones. Oh, dude, I thought we were in the money. I had more money in, cart- in, in floppy disk cases than did floppy disk, you know? Just sitting out on the... Crazy. What's the point? I wanted a computer. <laughs> but computers were expensive. And I wanted a computer, and I was told my parents, nope, you're not getting a computer, you're not getting a computer, you're not getting a computer. And then I woke up one Christmas morning, and there was a computer there, and I could not contain myself. I saw it as I opened it up, and I was so excited and so thankful, I dropped it. And then I ran down the hall because I was crying in joy and I didn't want anybody to see what a wimp I was. You see? I remember that vividly. And I'm like, wow! And then I spent the next, what, three years learning how to program and then the programming language that I learned was antiquated and it was worthless. And then Apple came out with something that could be afforded. No different, just new. I was thankful for that computer. It's what I desired. It's what I wanted. I couldn't think of not having it. And then when it was given to me, I was thankful for the computer. And then I was so thankful to the one who gave it to me. You see? That's our, that's our lot in life. That's what we are to be thinking about every single day. Not the computers that we have. Because we buy a new one every year or two now, don't we? Oh, this thing's slow. Buy another one. Not the stuff that you've been given. Not the house that you have or the relationship that you have. Though we should be thankful for these things, to whom are we showing our gratefulness? It should be the God of the Bible. It should be the Christ of Scripture. But what happens when all of this stuff that keeps us focused on, wow, I'm so glad I have this, I'm so thankful, thank you, Lord. Where is the Job gratitude? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Shut my mouth that I may praise you. Job said these words. He gave this idea of praise in the midst of complete loss. Not because things were good, because things were horrid. And Job said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Beloved, You want the peace that surpasses all understanding? You have to recognize what it is that God is truly doing. And that all these temporary trinkets of which we all dance a little jig and are excited about are also blessings from the Lord, but 
do not the wicked also have these things? Do not sometimes the wicked even seem to prosper more than we? And doesn't that ebb and flow? You know what I've found in the writing of Paul as he talks in Philippians? When he says, I've had much and I've had little and I've learned to do much more with nothing. Why? Because when he's had nothing, he's been in the best place he's ever been to realize all that he had was everything. Because he had Christ. He had Christ. And you're thinking, what has this got to do with Genesis 2? Everything. It's got everything to do with Genesis. This is why Genesis was written. So that we may know the author of our joy. That we may know the power of God unto joy. And that we may know the purpose of our life here is to be joyful, which is to be thankful, which is to celebrate the the God of glory and His salvation for His people, which is why He created the world and everything in it. And that everything that comes, everything that comes, The 80-something people that I've deleted out of my phone in the last 15 months who have perished through this pandemic. And as of last week, six family members who have perished during this pandemic. It's a time of mourning. It's a time of mourning. But in the sovereignty of God is a time of thanksgiving. It is a time of praise. It is a time of blessing. It is a time of joy. You see, you hear that and you go, that don't make no sense. It surely doesn't. It makes no sense in the context of our human reason and rationale. But it makes perfect sense in the picture of glory. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 15 through 17. Look at this. The God, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Important words. Lord English has ruined our culture. (laughs) And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for." When you eat of it, on that day, you shall surely die. And that's all we're going to do today. Because in that text right there, and we're going to be here, we're going to come back to this next week and as we continue in this chapter, but what we need to see here is that as the Lord has taught His people the gospel, as I've already tried to show you this morning, we have not looked at the Old Testament with the right lens. Now, some people would say, well, Tippins, how do you know that the way you look at the Old Testament is correct? Because I just mimic Paul and John and James and Jesus. The apostles create the theology of the Old Testament. Its purpose, its meaning. When we get to the the marriage, the the, the two becoming one flesh here in a little bit and all, and, and, and we see that relationship between Adam and Eve, man and woman the first and the life giver, we'll start to see that we can't interpret that based on what we read. We interpret that based on what Paul has taught us. 
In Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, we see also in Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day who were trying to trap him and their understanding of Old Testament theology, and Jesus just blows them out of the water. They can't answer it. So it's not an interpretive issue. It's not, well, that's what you think. No, it's what the disciples, it's what the apostles are saying. It's what John's gospel is all about. Why does John use in the beginning, in the beginning of his gospel? Because he is going to tie the creation of the world with the purposes of Christ and all of his majesty and the fullness of everything that God ever could reveal himself to be in the man, in the God man, Jesus Christ, and then show that the power of God in creation is a shadow of the one true creator coming to the earth that he made in the man, in the flesh in His humanity, and that everything that He does in power, even raising Lazarus from the dead, is just a temporary shadow, a picture of the reason that we have joy in the midst of everything else. Because Christ is enough. He is all in all. And so if we're not looking, we'll continue to look in ourselves. We'll continue to look in that, why am I not joyful? What can I do to be joyful? Why can't I change my attitude? I had, I mean, going through my old journals, it was really fun. In the seventh grade, I wrote down, my, my life's motto was, attitude is everything. Now, my mother would probably say, well, you should have lived by it, son. <laughs> I was highly optimistic during those days. Leadership was new. Public speaking was new. Forensics was new. That's attitude. Yeah. I'm just having a bad day. That's because you choose to have a bad day. <laughs> no, it's not. Then I became an adult, right? Here's your adult diploma. You're having a bad day. Welcome to life, buddy. I mean, that's what it was like. It's like, oh, wow. Biggest problem is it in my 100 kilobyte hard drive. It's been full for 10 years. No. It's the fact that things aren't good in the world. And as long as I seek a way to find joy in me or the things of the world, what does John say in his first epistle? Do not love the world or the things of the world, for the things of the world are not of God, but are of the world, and the things of the world are passing away. It's like going to a restaurant, and instead of going in and ordering an exquisite meal prepared by a chef who can taste things with his mind, is to go out to the grease catch and dip a Dip a spoon in and just eat that garbage. Not that you would. You would not succeed. There's a challenge for TikTok. Go ahead. How many spoons can you take? You can't. Yeah, the restaurant owners are going, Rawr. yeah. You, you don't do that. Going into the world, going into oneself to try to find peace, joy, comfort, solidarity, foundation, focus, greatness, attitude, it's like going to the grease pile. It's like going to the garbage bin to find food and sustenance and joy and pleasure in its purpose. And see, most folks like to learn a few things in life. Some folks like to learn a lot of things in life. When it comes to doctrine in the Bible, some folks like to learn large things and nothing more. They like to really be heady and they just stay on these high doctrines and they can only trace them back in, the, in, their, in their current vernacular, you know, a couple hundred years. But they skip right over the Scripture they don't learn anything else. And some people like to just learn the little things. Jesus loves me. 
This I know for the Bible tells me so. And that's enough for me. And they don't ever want to read the Bible any further to learn some of the bigger, deeper things of Christ. And all in all, those who aren't learning at all times lack wisdom. Pastors who aren't learning lack wisdom. Because they think they know everything. That's why the scripture teaches never to lay hands on a young man. Because his zeal will outpower the truth. You don't ordain a young man, no matter how good he is at exposition, no matter how, no matter how powerful he is in, in, expor, exposes, you know, in, in oratory, no matter how good he is in leadership, no matter how loving he is, because his zeal will pump him up. Now, there are exceptions to that. It said, oh, you're not old enough. No, there is exception to that. And that is what we see in 1 Timothy, where Paul says, and this young boy, he put his hands on him, and with power of the Holy Spirit, he ordained him to be a minister of the gospel, and not just a minister of the gospel, but the elder and the overseer of the totality of the Greek culture of Ephesus. And he says, do not let people look down on you because you are young. But let me tell you something, boy. Don't you live like a boy. You live like a man. You put away childish things. You don't play anymore. You don't do silly stuff anymore. This is not the life for the elder. You've got you to grow up because your youth is against you already, 80%. There's older men who you are going to have to serve and you're going to have to speak to as a father. You have authority over them by the call of God, but you cannot lord over them as though you're their boss. You must guide them and teach them with all patience, gentleness, and humility. I learned that quick as a kid. You don't talk sharply to your father. Some of you may have, but you wouldn't have talked sharply to my father. You wouldn't talk sharply to my mother. Fly, flap, flip, flop, any other two-syllable thing that wiggles, it'll hit you. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. Just, I learned not to do it. So here's Timothy. Timothy learned to learn from the Scripture. Paul appealed to this truth. Those things that you learned as a child, the Holy Scriptures that are profitable for you unto salvation. Timothy, remember Moses and remember Isaiah and remember David. Those things are profitable unto salvation. God showed you the gospel through these things. So see, this is the doctrine of the theology of Old Testament. Reveals Christ. It starts here in Genesis. It starts here with God creating a man and putting him in the garden that he created and and we we see it and we begin to sit in that reality and then all of a sudden everything begins to pun intended grow around us to maturity timothy you keep that in front of you and then you entrust this very thing this wise humble slow constant learning not only for yourself but you keep learning and then you teach other men to learn to keep learning. See, that's one of the misapplications of pastoral leadership is they think that people think, well, the pastor knows that he's going to teach what he knows. No, the pastor teaches people how to learn, not what to learn. That's doing the work of the ministry. Anybody can get a lot of information, but it doesn't mean it's doing anything. Information is, the, is a pariah in the world today. It's too much. And everybody's so smart <laughs> in their own fallacies. And so belligerent with anything that's against them. Beloved, that is not the nature of Christ, nor is it the nature of Christ's people. So we need to 
realize that God is faithful to teach His people concerning Christ. How is He going to do that? Through His Word and His timing. So God alone can create good and call good what He chooses because only God has the authority and the power to establish the goodness that is required by His own image. And in this text, as we'll see in the weeks to come, a lot of theologians come and say, okay, here is the covenant. Here's the beginning of multi-covenants. Now what is a covenant? We've learned as grace truth what a covenant is. A covenant is a contract. A covenant is a promise contract where there is a what condition and the meeting of that condition in order to result in the outcome of that. We live in a, a day of covenants. We have covenants that are laws. We have covenants that are this. We have covenants that are that. We have health covenants. We have housing covenants. We have neighborhood covenants. We have marriage covenants. We have contract. Anytime you've got a contract or you've got a conditional obligation, that is a covenant. And theologians have systematized the covenants of the Bible to such a degree that we have pieced God out. We have sliced Him like a Christmas pie and we've placed Him in five different houses and put Him in five different places and five different dispensations. And beloved, I'm not going to get on that boat of, of just knocking people's theories. But theories don't bring you to truth and theories don't give you joy. Theories aren't powerful to save and theories aren't powerful to produce solidarity and rest in the life of the believer. Only truth is, and Jesus Christ is that truth. So I'm not going to teach the covenant of work because I don't believe there is one. I believe that's a man-made establishment. Oh no! Oh no! You just destroyed 600 years. I didn't destroy anything. God's Word destroys everything. Now, if you are a theology nerd and you love historical theology, then by all means learn these things. But these things are not biblical exposition. There's a huge, huge chasm between the two. Huge chasm. And if you're going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, then you're in the best place in the building. Because now you can learn. Me too. God commands things and God purposes things. And the one thing we need to focus on today in these few verses is that God has commanded His people to worship Him. And God has purposed His people to worship Him. And until we get that right, why don't you listen to this, beloved? Listen very carefully. And for those of you who have been walking with us in John's writings and we went through John's epistles, you know this is not new. This is the same old stuff we've been teaching for ten years here. Until we get this right, beloved, we ought not move on to anything else. Until we worship rightly and love the Lord rightly, we should continue to work in that way and not do anything else. I want to be used by God. God doesn't want us to be His banner men. We're not Nehemiah. We're not David. These people have been used... And now they're gone. They're worthless. We have an exit door on this door, exit sign here, and an entrance there. And then a couple of months from now, we decide, nope, you're going to come in here and you're going to leave that. We're going to swap it. Say entrance and exit. And that door is no longer the way out. It's the way in. And one day we may decide, we're going to seal that off and put a door here. 
That door's gone. This is what we are. We're just tools in the hand of our God to be used for His purposes. And beloved, our job here is not to be great among men, but it's to be nothing so that Christ is everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus, when the sons of Zebedee, when their mothers come and say, can my sons sit one at your right and one at your left? Remember that? They're really working hard for you, Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying in a paraphrase, ain't nobody working for me. I'm working for them. And if they want to be great in the kingdom, they're going to be nothing. They're going to be nobodies. This is the God of creation. Born into a, a person, into the womb He created, into the world He created, into a body He created for Himself so that He could create, so that He could save and redeem His people justly that He created for Himself. So God commands and purposes His people to worship. We need to look at that. So specifically in this little phrase here, this one sentence, if you will, the Lord put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. To work and to keep. Now I want you to not do what most people do. Well, work means this. Keep means this. When I'm at work, I'm doing this. When I'm keeping things, I'm doing this. That's not how you read the Bible. This is like the will of God in, 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 in Romans chapter 12, the good and perfect. People say, oh, there's several different wills, the good will, perfect will. This is, this is philosophy. Let's quit doing that to God and just read it, soak it in and eat it. When I eat food, I love food, guys. I'm telling you, I love exquisite food. I, you know, champagne taste on grape juice budget type stuff. Uh, you know, but I love good cooked food. I don't sit there and wonder, hmm, a little thyme, a hmm, little basil, hmm, hmm, writing down the recipe. I close my eyes, I chew, I swallow, repeat. Mmm, delicious. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You see that analogy? See and rest. Behold and worship. Thank Him. This is the application of the Bible a thousand percent over everything else you've ever been taught. The Garden of Eden is a picture of God preparing not just the world through which He would create redemption and give life, showing that He is sovereign in all of it and that nothing exists outside His power, but the Garden of Eden is now a special reality, a special shadow of what He would do in Christ. That if, he wants, if man wants to walk with God, God alone is going to have to drag man into the place where God can be. That's why Paul uses that type of stuff. Snatched out of the domain of darkness. The Father will draw them. That's a forcible yanking. It's not a wooing. Oh, come on. Just come to me. Come, please, come. What do we see when... That's just not... No, it's a snatching. It's an arresting. God is overcoming and overpowering death and destruction and chaos. And He's creating order out of it. He's separating dark from light and land from sea and the water from the ground and the water from the atmosphere. And He's building these places to put life. And He puts life in the sky and life in the sea and life on the land. And then out of that land He creates life, particularly in humanity, to bear His image 
And that image is the shadow of the true glory of God, which is Christ Jesus alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, John all 1, Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1, and so on and so forth. And this is the glory of God revealed, and now God then in creation creates a special little place out of the whole place, out of the whole cosmos. Here's a, here's a planet, and out of the planet, there's a tiny little place. Where God meets man. I can show you, if I drew it out on a whiteboard, I can show you that the way the temple is laid out in worship in the Old Testament will perfectly lay out the way Eden is laid out in the world of creation. God creates a place for His people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the words there in the original language, to work it and keep it, there's a lot of things that we could talk about here, just like we could talk about the poetry of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. But it's not necessary. So I'm I'm, I'm leery to even teach it, because then what happens in our minds, we go, ooh, headiness. I'm going to grab that. I'm going to become a Hebrew scholar. I'm going to become a poet. I'm going to parse words. No, read words. Eat words. Live in the presence of the Word of God and rest in those words. But take, don't take my word for it. Just know that in this context, God is saying work it and keep it. And if we go through the New Testament, there are three other words that are translated to work and to keep. And they are work and serve and worship And all three of those words in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, are established in such a way that the work that it's talking about is preparing the temple for worship or the persons or the body for worship. To keep is to prepare and continue the maintenance of the place of worship of God so that God's glory is always manifest in its pictures like the showbread and the sacrifices and the incense and the candles and everything else. There's always a picture. And to worship is to give God praise and to thank Him for who He is and what He has given us in Christ Jesus. He's created a body for us that He might live among us and that we might be His people. We see the idea of working and keeping in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, where the word of the Lord says, Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. What's that mean? Keep it separate. So the idea of working and keeping is to separate, be separate, to to make it where it is no longer a labor for you, but a labor for God. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, is the seventh to your Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your servant, male nor female, nor your livestock, nor the sojourner who is with your, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the land and the sky, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day that has no end, for it is the rest of Christ. Therefore the Lord has blessed the seventh day and has set it apart from all other days. Well, what do we do? I'm going to create me an Eden. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to to get me a garden. I'm going to make it an Eden. I'm going to get me a temple. I'm going to make it an Eden. I'm going to get me a church. I'm going to make it an Eden. I'm going to get me a practice. I'm going to make it an Eden. I'm going to create a spiritual discipline in my household. I'm going to make it an Eden. We are always in the business of creating idols in our own flesh. Beloved, God is not pleased with that. 
Paul says to the Hebrew people, it is impossible to please God without faith. Actually, he says it the other way around. Well, I've got faith. Look at it. Faith sits still when it's faith resting in the sovereignty of God. And then as we are in midweek, Lord willing, this week I will be teaching in James again. We see that faith that rests loves. So we are to worship and part of that worship is to love one another. And that is what James means when he says faith without works is a dead faith. But never, ever, 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 ever should we ever be working to establish a sense of righteousness or to establish a sense of uh, a pleasure to the Lord, thinking that He will show us favor in any salvific way because of how good we're doing. We don't need to create a place of worship for the ones who are true worshipers. Jesus says in John chapter 4, worship in spirit and in truth. God in Eden has shown this picture to keep and to work. Work. That very word is used in resting on the Sabbath. It's an act of worship. The word serve in Genesis 27. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you and be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Serving. Is an act of worship. And you say, oh man, this is so hard. I'd have never seen that. Yes, you would. If you just read Romans, you would have seen that. If you had just read Ephesians, you would have seen that. Therefore, let us, because of the grace of God, He has transferred us into the domain of light, because He has given us life, because He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because, therefore, then do these things. Let malice and malcontent and, and anger and rage and all these things love one another with, a, with an intimacy. Sit still and know that I am God. You see how the Old Testament prophets and the psalmists in their experience. They're the only theologians we need. But we prove what we think we see them saying by the apostles' teaching in the New Testament writing of Jesus. To work and to serve and to, and to, and to keep the garden is to work by setting apart, knowing that it is by grace alone. To serve by worship. To serve one another. In Exodus 3, verse 12, and he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. That word serve there is worship. Yeah, worship. We are to worship. What is worship? Thanksgiving. So our job, beloved, is to praise. I've not been on social media much. I don't have it on any of my devices anymore, so I have to really log in on the browser, old school stuff, you know. But it's been such a blessing because I'm not inundated by all the fodder and the silliness and the constant barrage of questions. I mean, I think we got like 140 questions for Theology on Calls. I don't know what we're going to do uh, with this. But, you know, I just it's been so, so much more peaceful. To be able just to exist. To be able just to pray about what's on my heart, about what's in your lives, about what's needed for our, our intimacy. To read the Word and to read a book and to read the newspaper if you want to. And not be so inundated 
And finding all of a sudden now that my job ultimately is to praise the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we see several times where Paul talks about the gospel in an incredible way. A very myopic way. In other words, very narrow. He doesn't, the gospel of God, the love of God is not this woo, lovey, feely, dooly, beely. I mean, it's a very myopic, narrow, precise, laser-esque reality. God loves His people in Christ Jesus and He gave His Son for them that they may be His righteousness. And we see this. We see the election of God as the whole purpose of His sovereign grace that what God has decreed, it will take place. And we declare that gospel and Paul has declared that gospel and God has saved His people in the place of Ephesus. And as he gets through, he reminds them in Ephesians 2 about who they were and now who they are and more importantly whose they are And he says this phrase, to the praise of His glorious grace. The reason God did this is to the praise of His glorious grace. The reason you are saved is to the praise of His glorious grace. The reason you have been, by grace, drawn out of darkness is to the praise of His glorious grace. So what are we working toward? To praise God for His mercy. That's what grace is, for His kindness. For His effectual loving kindness toward His people. Who are not Jewish but who the selection of the Jews pointed to, of all nations and all tongues and all tribes, of all men in every generation. So our job is to praise. Because remember, as I've said already this morning, from nothing God created a place to live, and in that place He created life, and in that life He created humanity, and in that humanity He created a garden, and He put man in the garden as a picture of being with Him. Life and the power of God's provision. As we talked about two weeks ago, out of the ground came the trees and out of the ground came man. God takes whatever He wants and creates whatever He wants with it. And then the picture of the trees are like God's sustenance, God's provision. Without the tree, man would die. Without Eden, man will die. Think about that. That's next week. And because this is all by grace, we know that eternal life is sovereign and free. Living things exist by the sovereign and free purposes of God. From water, if we take out the fish, they die. If we take the birds out of the air and put them in the water, now oh, there's examples, there's, there's, there's anomalies. But generally speaking, you take a bird, put it under the sea, it will drown. Take it out of the place where it's supposed to live. It will die. That's why habitat is such an important thing in the ecosystem. That's why if you come across some rare bug or rare bush or rare uh, bird and you're building a shed, you don't get to build a shed anymore. (laughs) You just get to see the bird. You take things out of the ground that should be in the ground, they dry out and die. You take things out of the life-giving hand of God, it perishes. You take man out of Christ, he's damned. And as creation set forth the order from chaos, everything necessary for life, so eternally in creation, God set forth His people in His Son. Christ has had a people before there were a people. Reckoned unto Him that at the day the Lord had determined He would die on the cross and justly and righteously 
and judicially pay for their sins. And He proved that He is the giver of life for He raised Himself from the dead. There is our joy, beloved. And this is all of grace. Life is found in Christ, the God-man. And when man is outside of the place of God, he is dead. And because of God's life-giving grace, we don't need to work to get to God. I want you to hear that again. Because of God's life-giving grace, we do not need to work to get to God. Matter of fact, there's only one way to God, and what is it? Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And what did the disciples say? Well, how do we get there? You know, that was the reason he said that. Let me go with you. We can't join God in his purposes. We can't join God in his power. There is no what we would call synergy when it comes to salvation. God is either the Savior of his people, wholly and fully and freely, or he isn't. And beloved, it is a false gospel, it is a false narrative, it is a false plea, it is a false proclamation. When people come out there and tell the world, what you've got to do is you've got to get your life right. What you've got to do is you've got to come to Christ. What you've got to do is do that. It's not a problem to quote what the Bible quotes, but what we've done is we've then said, well, how do we do that? What must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives the answer to the rich young ruler in His love for him. He says what? He says, you must be as God is in all perfection. And we know that the law is a picture of Christ. That's all it is. And when we try to come to God, we are nullifying grace. When we try to find our way in which we can be right before the Lord through any effort, any work, any action... Well, what about saving? What about believing? Believing is not an action. It's stopping the actions. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that believing is a gift of God. For us to be able to just take a deep breath and sit down and stop. It's like shutting off the car in the middle of a highway, throwing out the keys, popping the hood and kicking the engine out, and laying in the road. But even that's not the right picture because it requires us to do all that. Faith is in the midst of all these religious opportunities, in the midst of all these things that we think we're doing to establish some sense of goodness in our life, even if we say, oh, it's God doing it in me, in the middle of that, saving faith is like God immediately, like some kind of a matrix-type stuff or, you know, fantasy-type stuff, this brick wall of grace, and we slam into it and we peel down it like a Looney Tune. God has captured us and we can't move and we can't breathe on our own and everything then is we realize wow God is the life breather he is my breath Christ is my hope Christ is my life Christ is my movement we don't need to work to get to God God has come to us because of God's life-giving grace, we cannot make this place a place of worship. We cannot make this world a place of worship. It's not a place of worship. The places of worship are temporary shadows. And the true worship is the one who worships by the power of the Spirit to rest in the Sabbath who is Jesus Christ and all the work of creation unto eternal life that He has already finished. And we praise Him for it. And as we're together, we 
praise Him together, and as we're together, we serve one another and give to one another. We can see God's sovereignty in this life-giving grace. We can see it in the picture, as we'll see over in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. We can see it in Jacob and Esau. We can see it in the, in the, in the story of Ruth. We can see it in David. We can see it everywhere we look. We can see the picture of Christ. We can see the picture of God's sovereign grace. Therefore, we can stop laboring for glory. And as Jesus would say in John chapter 6, when the people say, what must we be doing to do the work of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. And I'm going to use our words there, that you rest upon the Son whom He has sent. Do not labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. How do we work for that bread? By believing it is enough. How do we do that? By the gift of God. Where do we know through the reading of the Word? Now we're back to the very introduction of the sermon, aren't we? The Word alone shows us this truth. And beloved, the philosophy part of my brain goes, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but oh, there's so many other things. Yeah, but yeah, but this and that and the other. And then when I do that, I dissect the Lord and all of His goodness and glory into so many ample bite-sized hors d'oeuvres that He's worthless. God cannot be divided. Just sit and see. Behold. You know that word we use in the Bible? We don't use it in today's discussions, do we? Check out my new car. What if your friend said, Behold, my new car. Are you trying out for Shakespeare here? Behold, my new shoes. (laughs) You know. No, look at this. Look at that. That's all it means. It means look. And when we look by the power of the Spirit, it's because we've been given eyes to see. We've been given the vision of knowing the mind of Christ. It's ours, beloved. And we can stop laboring for that which perishes and rest in the eternal life of Christ. We don't need to find Eden. Some people have told me that. How do, how do we establish Eden? We don't need to find... People are looking, archaeologists are looking for Eden. It's like looking for the end of the cosmos. It doesn't exist until you see Christ. Because He's the beginning and the end of all things. Now let that mull around in your mind with the 2021 20, understanding of Physics. We don't need to plant certain types of trees to get to Eden to grow back. We don't need to establish certain types of righteousness. We don't need to come up with certain types of water and have some spirit movements. We don't need any of that. God has already established all of these things. We don't need to weed the garden as though some type of progressive righteousness is a, will, will really help God get on track this world. God has done all that is necessary and He alone is able to make righteous all that He declares to be good. Because God is in the business of overcoming the will of man. I want you to hear that. He didn't set up Eden like a real estate agent and say, Yo, Adam, check out this new... Behold! A new place! What do you think? Live here on the seashore? Up in the mountains? Or the Garden of Eden? Tell you what, come sheep. I'll do good. No points, no closing costs. Just one thing, you've got to maintain it. 
What is the maintenance of the garden? Worshiping God. That's the work of God. That's the work of the garden. That's the work of man in the place, in the presence of God is to worship Him. And there were a lot of doing and doing and doing and doing in the precepts of Moses. And why? Because the holiness of God cannot be displayed and measured in the precepts of humanism. It's all these pictures and all this stuff. It was never ending. It was laborious. It was unbelievable. Imagine just the tabernacle of setting up and tearing down and setting up and tearing down. I remember a church plan I was a part of years and years ago and it was just like, where are we meeting this week? We don't know. We don't know. Let's just go there. Let's go here. Let's set up. Oh, you bring this, you bring that. It's a pain in the butt. I couldn't imagine rolling out tents, traveling with animals, setting up all this stuff, doing these things. But it's still, when the temple was built, it was still laborious. It was still constant work, day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All year long, the priests worked, the Levites tended and served. Why? Because it was their duty to worship God. It was the preparation and the service and the worship of God. But God is in the business of not offering options. He didn't say to Adam, check out this cool real estate, would you like to live there? The Bible says He took the man and put him in the garden. Put him in the garden. Paul undergirds this reality in Colossians chapter 1. He who has snatched us out of the domain of darkness and has qualified us to be inheritors of light. There's no offer of salvation, beloved. There's a declaration of God's salvation and then there is a command to believe it. And no one can believe it. That's why we create a new Eden every time we turn around. We're doing something we're doing something out of our own will. God is in the business of overcoming the will of man. He's also in the business of overcoming the understanding, the ability, and the power of man. We see that established throughout all of the Old Testament, right? Man was not an actor in the creation. He wasn't an actor. He's not an actor in his salvation. Man is just the object, the recipient of these things. A created thing. We see it in... Cain and Abel, where Cain and Abel both present perfectly good sacrifices, but God does not accept Cain's sacrifice because He does not accept Cain. He does not accept Esau as the firstborn because He hates him. He loves Jacob. He does not let Babel grow. He confuses them all. He doesn't let the king stand haughty. He makes him act like a cow naked in the field and eating grass on all fours. There is no such thing as sovereignty outside of God. He can do all that He does. And so our job in all of this is to worship God, to rest in the supreme power and the promises of God through Christ Jesus. We should be about praising Him, thanking Him, being glad in Him, telling others as we're able about Him and meeting their needs in His name. As I said in the beginning, Jesus says to the disciples in John, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, you shall be also. This is proof positive in the theology of creation and God preparing a place. Eden is that place where God meets man. The Holy of Holies is that place where God meets man. Who is, who is the Ark of the Covenant? Who is the Holy of Holies? Who is 
the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ the righteous. Paul says to Timothy he cannot deny himself. I didn't get to Philippians, but I did read it in the beginning. Philippians 4 sort of expresses this, where Paul says, Therefore, beloved, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. Every time Paul wrote to the church, the New Testament church, he always expressed his love for them, his desire to be with them, his desire to grow in their understanding, to grow their understanding of, of the gospel, his desire for them to be united in their love for one another. You notice that. He always put their actions to be unified in their service to the Lord, which is an act of worship. Then in that moment when they would come together, He would then instruct them. Those who wouldn't come together in behavior, He would expel them. But Paul's desire was not to be an academic theologian, though he was, he was by the power of the gospel. And what he wrote was sufficient for all theology to ever be written. But his heart was for the church, because this was his worship. (laughs) I want to worship the Lord face to face, so if I die, I get Christ. But if I live, I get you for Christ, so I'll live for that is far better for you. You see that? That's the mind of Christ. <clears throat> then he says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I'm telling you now, help these people who have served, labored side by side with the gospel, with Clement and others who helped me, whose names are in the book of life. Paul wasn't worried about them not being true believers because now they were fighting and fussing and arguing over some doctrinal issues or over some personal issues. He was saying these are our sisters in the faith. They were helpful. Please tell them they must get along. And then he commands us in verse 4 of Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. When? Always. Good times? Yep. Bad times? You betcha. Always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness... Where is that in today's economy? Where do you buy it? Where is it for sale? Where is it on display? It's not there. Beloved, it ought to be in the hearts and mouths and minds and actions and attitudes of the church. Attitude is everything in the context of the gospel because if we are not displaying the attitude of Christ, we are fleshly. Let our reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What causes us to be unreasonable? Anxiety. That's my middle name now. James Anxiety Tippins. Never dealt with it as bad as I have over the last year. And the crazy thing is, I'm not scared of anything. But I'm constantly gnawing in the sense of my heart and mind about everything. It's like, oh, is this going to come out? Is this going to come out? It's gonna... And now I'm physically ill because of it. Ta-da! The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. It sounds just so silly. It sounds so ridiculous. So what am I supposed to do if I'm not going to be anxious? Well, I'm putting my brain on those things. See, I'm letting my mind think about these things. And instead of that, Paul says, in everything, by prayer, so I should be talking to God, and supplication, I should be praying for other people with thanksgiving, Praising to His glorious grace, let your request be known to God. And in this prescription, verse 7, and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We've talked about the gospel and the power of the gospel and the reality of the gospel and the knowledge of the gospel and what it does for the life of the believer. But now we see the parallel here with God creating the garden, putting His man in the garden of Eden with Him in the presence of God. Yet even in the presence of God, where Jesus, the, man, the, the, the Son of God, walked with His created beings in the cool of the day, these people were still anxious. There's a snake in the garden. What woman wouldn't be anxious if the snake in the garden, right? But at that very place, the Lord was at hand. In this very moment, in you and me right now, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. Just worship. And if it were easy, we wouldn't even have to be here, would we? So what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to focus my mind on Eden? There's nothing I can do to get there. Nothing I can do to create it. Nothing I can do to really reestablish it in me. Where is that peace? The peace is Jesus Christ. And Paul explains that in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 4. Listen to these words. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And think about what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Look at me. Look at my life. Look at how I deal with my stress and my pain and my suffering. Because all Christ's power is great in my weakness. When I try to work, I fail. When I am nothing and can do nothing, Christ is everything. And my joy is complete. And I can focus my mind on you when I'm in chains because Christ has given me this heart. What you've seen and heard and learned in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The Lord is at hand. He is with you. He has promised to be with us, beloved. This is the prescription. This is what Genesis 2 is supposed to show us. And that when it's left up to us, when we do our own thing, what happens? We die. That's what we'll see next week. But beloved, Christ has now died in our place. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Yeah, it sounds like platitudes. Yeah, it's an easy one-off just to tell people, just rejoice. For God is good. But it's another thing by the divine power of the Lord through each other to encourage each other in the faith to rest in this. Nothing, nothing is outside the sovereign hand of our Savior, especially us. And He will not let us go. Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for the peace. It's so illogical that I want to rationalize it. And when I do, Lord, You know that it's just circular. I just go from here to there, and it's, it's this whirlwind of hope that makes no sense to the unconverted mind. And even with us, your regenerate children, Father, it is a very hard struggle. One with which Christ is very understanding and sympathizing. For He knows what it's like to be in this flesh. He knows what it's like to experience fear. He knows what temptation to doubt and to not believe your promises is. 
And so, Father, in Him, we have a perfect Savior who can sympathize with us in our weakness, but also is the greatest power of all in the midst of our powerlessness. And, dear Lord, Your promises are that You cannot fail, for You cannot deny Yourself. And so, Father, teach us the true reality of Eden, that we are with You and that You are with us. And that as Jude would say, to keep ourselves in the love of God, Father, we do that not in ourselves and not in any reality, not in any real way, Lord, but we do that because You have kept us. And so we wait upon You, we look for You, we worship You, and we love one another as we continue to grow each other and to serve each other. Thus we are serving. In the least of these, we are serving You. And I thank you, Lord, for this church and for its families. And I pray for us, Lord, for many of us are hurting and ill and emotional and fearful. Father, many who have not been able to come back for months and months and be in fellowship, Father, I pray for us all that we would be mindful of one another, that we would labor before you, that you would cause us to remember one another in prayer. And Lord, that we would, as much as, it's, as, much as we're able, Lord, help us to serve each other. The smallest things can often make the biggest difference. But Lord, in all of the service and all the application of gospel living, Lord, let us never forsake the gospel on our tongues. Let us always remind one another of Your free and sovereign grace, so beautiful and powerful. Father, as we continue to worship this morning through song, we thank You for who You are and that You have called us to Yourself. And where you are, Lord, you shall one day take us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, beloved.